0: Good morning Hapsiba family. We are so very thankful you chose to worship with us today. I'd like to take a moment to go over a few upcoming events. Are you planning to attend our fall festival? In case you missed the announcement, our fall festival is scheduled for Friday, October 27th at six o'clock PM. This is the one night each year when our community comes to us right here at HBC. Join us for all the fun like trunk or treat, inflatables, games, a free hot dog supper, and more. We also need your help to welcome our community to HBC. Adults and youth, please use the QR code on the screen to register as a volunteer. Where are all the young men? This next one is just for you. It's time to register for the HSM Guys Weekend. Please plan to join us November 3rd and 4th. This yearly Guys Weekend focuses on spending time sharpening one another more in the image of the perfect man, Jesus Christ. This year's focus will be on leadership and we would love for you to join us. Please use the QR code to register today. Lastly, please plan to join us for the upcoming Community Night of Praise on Friday, November 3rd at 6.30 p.m. This event will be held at Bethesda Baptist in Clayton and I'm sure it will be a blessing to worship together in praise. Again, we thank you for choosing to worship with us today, and we hope to see you again very soon.
1: Well, good morning, church. Good morning. Man, I know that Women's Weekend was this weekend. I know that you all probably have had a lot going on, but I need to hear you. Good morning, church. Good morning. Thank you. Would you guys please stand? Church, I want to uh, bring a... scripture to you today as we start our morning worship off. It's from Psalm 35, 9 and 10. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exalting in his salvation. O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong from him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. When we sing these words that we're going to sing in just a minute, who is like the Lord, We rejoice in that and we exult in that. So would you join me as we do that?
2: Told that multiple times we see it multiple times in Psalm 150. The chapter is very short, it's only seven verses. In the course of seven verses, David tells us over 13 times that we're to praise the Lord, that we're to praise God, that we're to praise Him for His mighty works, that we're to praise Him in His sanctuary, that we're to praise Him in the heavens, that we're to praise Him with cymbals and drums and our voices. And I want to say this morning coming off a women's weekend. Everybody's got a lot going on. I want to say this morning that it doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter where you're going. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter who you strive to be. Whatever you're facing in life, God wants to hear you sing. He wants to hear you praise his name. He wants to hear you worship him with your voice. So let's sing that chorus one more time. Okay, just Lincoln's going to play on the piano, nothing else. But let's sing that chorus one more time and sing out to him like you've never sang before. Praise the Lord for his wondrous works in your life.
1: Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Sing his grace. All your tips from far the seas to where.
3: Good morning. Um, We are focusing this week on the country of Uganda. I hope you've been praying along with us for Uganda this month. I would love to share with you some of the things that we do in Uganda. So I have some pictures to share with you. Um, Back in 2019, we planted a church in a remote village called Kamuli. I think we have a picture of this. Um, The church was um, put in this community because there was no Christian church in this whole area and in rural rural, Uganda many people don't have vehicles so it's very important for a church to be within walking distance Um, and so this church was um, planted in this place so that many people in this area would be able to worship Um, this church now has over 365 members so that's pretty cool Many of you sitting in this church gave to build this church. And so I just want to share that with you because the church is growing. When we are there next week, we'll have an opportunity to work in this church and to help them with their baptisms. So that'll be really exciting. Um, Also, we have 60 some kids, 62, I think, kids in our orphan sponsorship program. In Uganda, there is no public school. So if you can't afford your school fees, then you don't get to go to school. Um, and so many people here in the states are partnering with us and they are paying the school fees for these kids so they can go to school i think we have a picture of the kids some of the kids in their school uniforms Um, many of you sitting in here are doing that work you are sponsoring these kids so that they can get an education and it's very valuable to them Um, they love being able to go to school so we'll get to see all of these kids next week when we're there And then another thing that we do is, um, and this is one of the things I didn't think I would love so much, but it's actually one of my favorite things, is going into the prisons in Uganda. And this picture is a little obscure because we're really not supposed to take pictures. (laughs) So that's why it's sort of between the chair and the person in front of me. Um, But every time we have an opportunity to go into a prison in Uganda and share the gospel, we see so many people, mostly men, come forward and receive the gospel. And it is such a blessing to be able to take them things because if you go to prison in Uganda, they don't feed you every day. Um, They really depend on the kindness of people in the community to bring them supplies, the kindness of their family and their friends. And so when we have an opportunity to go into a prison, we often take soap and food, things like that for them. They're very grateful. Um, And then we get an opportunity to share Jesus with them and I know that it will change their life. So that's the greatest thing we can give them. Um, We do have a team that's going to Uganda. We leave Thursday. So if you're in the room and you're going, we would love to pray and commission this team. Come on, Rita. Rita's been with me many times. Here comes Rob. Anybody else? You can see the names of the people that are going on the screen. We also have prayer cards in the uh, mission center. Stop by and grab one so you can be praying for us this week as we go. We leave Thursday morning. Um, would you come and pray for us? Whoever would like to come and pray for us, we would really appreciate it. I'm ask Matt Atkins to do it.
4: father god that we love you and god we thank you uh for this church at hepsa god we thank you that uh that you've called us to go and that uh in so many ways you've opened so many doors for us to go to all of these places uh to proclaim your name uh to the ends of the earth father we pray this week for the group going to uganda uh for rita sabrina dylan rob megan aaron and amy god we just pray that you would uh be with them that you would uh that you would give them the courage to overcome any fears, uh, God. That you would um, hold back the enemy for any obstacles that He's trying to, to lay for them this week. Yeah, that you would be glorified, uh, Father. I pray for the churches that they're going to see. I pray for the um, the prisoners that they're going to that they're going to interact with. Father, I pray for those kids. Um, God, I just know that. Uh, while we're only there for a week that you, you may have been preparing hearts for months or years. And God, we just pray that you would give them the boldness to speak your name. We pray for uh, anything that might happen with their travels. God, we just know that um, there's so many things that can come that can uh, that can blind our eyes to your greater vision. And God, I just pray that you would uh, keep them focused and keep their, their minds set on you and keep their eyes fixed on Christ. And God, we just uh, pray that you would continue to do a wonderful work. Uh, in and through them, and that you would continue to bless the uh, the nation of Uganda, and um, that you would continue to uh, let your name be magnified there, that people would turn away from the, uh, the idols and their false religions, and that they would follow you. And God, we just uh, thank you that you've chosen us to get to participate in this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.
3: Thank you so much. If our ushers can come forward, we're gonna take our offering and pray for our pastor. Um, But while that's happening, I also wanna tell you that um, we are gonna be going to uh, Baltimore to work with CLC Church in um, West Baltimore next month. That um, trip is coming up quick, and there was some logistical things that needed to be worked out. So the interest meeting for that trip is actually next, this coming Wednesday night at eight o'clock in the Mission Center. So if you're interested in that, Josh Bunner will be here um, to share with you some details about that trip. That is our um, annual trip to CLC Church to do their Oh Give Thanks ministry. Uh, it's the week right before the weekend before Thanksgiving weekend. So if you're interested in that, mark that down on your calendar. And today we are praying for Dr. Mike Boone. He is uh, one of the pastors over at Wakefield Central Baptist Church. And I'm going to ask Mike Smith, since he's front and center, if he will pray for all these things.
0: Let's pray. Father God, it's good to be in your house today with your people, my brothers and sisters. We ask you to um, bless Mike Boone's ministry, uh, Pastor Mike. And uh, bless what he's doing there. Lord, we'd ask you to bless this trip to Uganda. We're so grateful that you're not done with humanity yet. Sometimes I pray you come back right now. But uh, there's more people that need to be saved. We thank you for giving them more time. We ask you to bless this offering. Bless John while he brings us a message. <clears throat> In Jesus' name, amen.
5: good morning, church. Man, God is good, isn't he? I mean, uh, uh, that that was really half-hearted. God is good, isn't he? Amen. I mean, we have so much to celebrate, and it is good to be in the house of the Lord this morning and to get to celebrate. Coming off of a wonderful women's weekend, I hope many of you ladies were able to join us this weekend, and uh, everything was uh, just so wonderful and encouraging, and uh, and I hope um, if you were part of The main sessions or the breakout sessions that you were inspired in your walk with the Lord. I hope that you were encouraged. I hope you were challenged. I hope, as you gathered together with other women or uh, husbands, sons, if your wives, mothers, sisters, all the ladies in your life were here, that they are uh, challenged in their walk with the Lord and ready uh, to follow hard after Him in this coming year. And and we're grateful to be able to do uh, wonderful ministries like that for the ladies here in this church and also for the ladies of our community this morning we're continuing in our study of John. So last week we we ended John chapter 4. if you guys will remember there we, we talked about the official that came to Jesus while he was in Cana. He was that Capernaum official, right? He traveled some some distance to reach Jesus because his son was sick and he wanted, Jesus to heal him. And if you guys remember, in that interaction, Jesus told him to go. He said, your son is well. And that man traveled back home, and and he found that as he was approaching his home, his servants came out to meet him. And they told him that, yes, your son, who was on the brink of death, has recovered. And when he asked about when this happened, they told him it was yesterday, about the seventh hour, which you'll remember we said was around 1 p.m. and he knew that this was this was the exact time that he had been speaking to Jesus. And even though when Jesus told him, "Go, your son uh, will live," he believed and he left believing. We see this this belief that had this faith that had begun in this man really confirmed when he found out that his son would indeed live. And not not only does the Bible tell us that he believed, but it tells us that his whole household likewise. Uh, believed in Christ. And so that's the place that we find ourselves when we pick up chapter 5. In fact, chapter 5 starts by saying, after this, well, after what? After that encounter that we we just talked about, that we just studied last week. It says, after this, this is John chapter 5, verse 1, there was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem, Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five-roofed colonnades. And in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And one man who was there who had been an invalid for 38 years, and when Jesus saw him lying there, and he knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, and he said, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going on, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. And now that day was the Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now that man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. And afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and he said to him, see, you are well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why they were, the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them. He said, My father is working until now, and I am working. And this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank you this morning for the, the joy, the privilege to be able to come into your house, Lord, and to be able to sing songs, sing the praise, Lord, that is truly due your name and to glorify you in your mighty works. God, we thank you for your word, Lord, that is life for us, Lord, that is living and alive and that guides us, Lord, as we seek to follow after you, Lord. I pray that we would hear and see clearly from you this morning, Lord, that you word would speak to our hearts, and God, that we wouldn't just grow in knowledge of you, but Lord, that we would grow in our likeness of Christ, and we would be transformed more and more into his image. Work now in this place through the presence of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's a lot of information in this chapter. In John chapter 5, there are, there are tons of things that we are presented with that it will do us well To understand, first off, we see, uh, we said already it was after this, after that interaction that we just talked about, that Jesus sees himself returning to Jerusalem. Now, if you'll remember, it wasn't that long ago that he was in Jerusalem for the Passover, right? And we saw him teaching, and that's where we saw Nicodemus come to him by night. And that's where we saw in chapter four, him ultimately leave through Samaria, right? And have this interaction with the Samaritan woman and then down into Galilee. And it seems that Jesus is back again in Jerusalem. And the Bible tells us it was for the feast of the Jews. Now, we don't know which feast this is. And if you read um, through all the, the commentators on this, there is no... Good agreement on what feast this is. There are there are no shortage of ideas of what feast this is, but John doesn't really tell us. Now there are a couple that are likely. So there are three feasts that the Jews were required, if they were anywhere near Jerusalem, there are three feasts that they were required to uh, come to Jerusalem to attend. One is the Passover, and we know that the Passover has already happened because that's why he was in Jerusalem. And we see the Passover is happening again in a few weeks when we get to John chapter 6. We'll see that he's back, uh, and the Bible tells us in John 6 that it is again the time for the Passover. So I think we can rule out the Passover. And there are a couple of other feasts. There's one that happens seven weeks after the Passover. That is actually called the Shavuot, which is weeks. It is the festival of weeks. It is a Jewish celebration of when the people came out of Israel, which you guys will remember was the Passover, and then when the Torah was delivered to Moses from God. So when they received the law, and it's always celebrated seven weeks after the Passover. So that is definitely a possibility, and it would have been in the the spring of the year after the Passover. And then there's another festival in the fall, Around harvest time, that is the festival of Booths, which some of you guys might be familiar with, where the people come and they erect a tent and they dwell in that tent there in Jerusalem um, to represent uh, the, their, their pilgrimage in the wilderness and the time that they spent there. So it could be either one of these festivals. We, we don't know. It could be some other festival that, again, we haven't been told about. But needless to say, Jesus is back in Jerusalem for this celebration, for a time when people are coming to Jerusalem. Notice that it says it was for a feast. So they're, they're coming to Jerusalem to celebrate, and yet, where does Jesus find himself? He finds himself in a place that is probably not very full of celebration. Probably doesn't look a whole lot like the rest of Jerusalem looks as they have come to town to feast and to celebrate. It says... In verse 2 now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda and that's where I want us to start. I want us to the first point there is a devastating situation. Which is interesting because Bethesda that the word Bethesda actually means house of mercy. And yet in the description of this house of mercy In this pool, right, that's what the Bible tells us. It says that there was a pool there by the Sheep Gate. It was called Bethesda. It had five roof colonnades. This means that there was columns all around the pool with rooftops over them, and probably the five means that there's five sets of roofs, not five sets of columns. So imagine a pool large enough that it has five sets of roofed open little villas around And in the midst of this, we see that the picture is that there is what verse 3 tells us, that there is a multitude of blind, lame, paralyzed people laying under these roofed colonnades waiting to get into this pool. That is a devastating situation. And again, I said that that. The Bible tells us it was a time for feasts and yet the place that Jesus finds himself is not among the people who are celebrating, not among the people who are feasting, but among the people who are destitute, who are hurting, who are blind, who are lame, who are in this place hoping to be healed. And the question becomes, why is it that they're in this place that they're hoping to be healed and so I, I want to address that because depending on the translation that you're using, one of a few things might have happened. One, if you are in the ESV, your translation goes straight from verse 3 to verse 5. And any of us that are good at math knows that there's a number between 3 and 5. It's 4. There, or you might have in your translation a verse 4. Or you might have a note that says... Hey, there used to be a verse 4, and now there's not a verse 4. And so I want to talk about verse 4, because one of the things that happens when we get English translations of the Bible is that they gather from all over the place multiple manuscripts of the same text. And this is important that you understand, because I, I want you to understand that everything that we have in this book is God's word. But that doesn't mean that man didn't have to get involved to translate. And God has preserved what he wants preserved. And what happened when we, when we have the original book of John is that John wrote this as a series of letters, things that were written down and sent to places, and other people copied those letters, and pass them along to other places so that the written word could spread. So that the copies of John's gospel would make it to all of the places that it needs to make it to. And one of the things that we find with that verse 4 when we get to um, really modern translations like the ESV, you know, that's only been around 20 or 30 years, is that when they look at all of those manuscripts, the earliest manuscripts, the ones that are closest to John's writing don't have verse 4, and it's probably likely that what happened is that somebody at some point wrote some context in there and said, the reason that people were all gathered in this place is, and this is what verse 4 says for those of you guys that don't have it, they were waiting on the move of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water, and whoever stepped first into that water was healed of whatever disease that they had. So what we find is that there was very likely some superstition that existed during this time. As we study the rest of this passage, we'll we'll be no strangers to the fact that there were many superstitions among the Jewish faith, but there was some superstition that existed at this time that said, when you see this water in this pool move that there's an angel of the Lord present that stirred the water. And if you're the first one into the pool, you receive some sort of healing from it, right? That you're healed of whatever disease that you have. And so that makes, man, that adds tons of context for the situation that we find ourselves in because the Bible tells us that the people that Jesus, the multitude of people that were there were were blind. meaning they couldn't see. They were lame. They had some, some sort of physical infirmity that kept them from moving around easily, or they were paralyzed. They were unable to move entirely at all. And so if these people are gathered in this place hoping that when the water is stirred, they will be the first ones into the water to be able to be healed because that was the myth or the belief. Man, these are the most hopeless of the people that are in that place hoping to be healed, because there is no chance that someone who is blind or that has some sort of physical infirmity or is totally paralyzed is going to be the first ones into the water when it's stirred. That is the situation that Jesus walks into. We don't know what a multitude is, but I can tell you that if there are five roofed buildings and it says that it's full, a multitude of people, that this is a desperate, a desperate situation full of people who, on the one hand, believe that this water will heal them. On the other hand, have really absolutely no chance of ever being the first person to be able to get into it. And so, on the one hand, they're hoping for healing. On the other hand, they're quite hopeless in their ability to get in. And that is the situation that Jesus finds himself in when he comes in and he sees this multitude of invalids. But the second point there, and I guess we're just going to do the whole outline at once. So uh, you guys probably all wrote it already down already. So, but the second point there is a direct question because this is the way that I don't know if you guys know this about Jesus. Maybe you've seen it by now, even if you've only been looking at how he behaves and how he acts and how he leads while we've been in a study of John. But he has a way of both teaching and illustrating at the same time and he also has a way of getting right to the heart of the issue. Jesus has a way both in the scriptures and in our own life of seeing exactly what it is that is the problem. And so the next thing that I want you to see there is a direct question. Now, in these multitudes the Bible tells us that there was there was one man that Jesus Began to talk to, and this is also characteristic of Christ. It is characteristic of Christ that in the multitudes of blind and lame and paralyzed, of invalids, uh, depending on your translation, but even in the multitudes of people coming to hear Him teach in the crowds, there is never any shortage of ability by Christ to focus on the one person that He needs to reach. And he does. And it says, the Bible tells us that there is a man there in verse 5 who had been an invalid for 38 years. Now, it doesn't say that he had been laying next to this pool for 38 years, but that for 38 years he had been unable to move. That, that word invalid is the same word earlier that it used for paralyzed. It, it means that he had been unable to move for 38 years, for, for most of the time that the average human life was in that day, this man had been totally unable to move and had been dependent on others to care for him. For some time, the Bible tells us, it says when Jesus saw him laying there, he knew that he had already been there a long time. For a long time, he had been laying next to this pool hoping that he would be the one that gets into the water and receives healing because there was nowhere else for him to find hope. For his belief, there was nowhere else in his life that something miraculous could potentially happen, that he would be relieved of his infirmity. And so he lay there under these roof colonnades just hoping that the waters would be stirred and that someone would come along and carry him in. And we see Jesus see him in that situation and know him and know that he had been there a long time. Jesus wasn't ill acquainted with the man's situation. No, when he looked upon him, he knew. He knew exactly. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly how long, but Jesus knew exactly how many days he had been laying there. How many weeks, how many months, how many years he had been laying there. How many prayers that he prayed, hoping that someone would come along and help him into the water. Desperate. For God to move and for him to heal him. And it's in the midst of that that Jesus asks him this direct question. Do you want to be healed? What a question. What a question for somebody who lay paralyzed in what he believed was the only place that he could potentially find healing. For we don't know how long, but probably weeks upon months upon years hoping to be healed, and Jesus' question is, do you want to be healed? And he poses the same question to us. He poses the same question to us when we have come into contact with the gospel. Maybe even while we're still yet far off, and the gospel seems pleasant to us, and we're not well acquainted with the sacrifice that it is to follow after Christ, the change to our life that it means to have a life that is sold out for Christ. He poses the same question to us. Do you, do you want to be healed? Because I can. Because I can deliver you from the sinfulness in your life. Because I can deliver you, and for this man, from the infirmity of your life. Because I can deliver you from addiction and from shame and from unforgiveness and from hatred. But do you want to be healed? And on the the one hand, we would look at this and we, we would say, who would say no to that? Who would say no to wanting to be healed? And yet, to be healed of this man's infirmity means a lot of things. One, it means that now he must care for himself. Now he must no longer depend on others, now he must give up probably the only place he knows laying under this place with the roof colonnade, and he must go to a place that is unfamiliar. He must do a thing that he doesn't know or doesn't have the experience to do. So to be healed means change. To to be healed, to be delivered from his infirmity, to be delivered as we begin to follow Christ from our sinfulness means a life that we're not Familiar with, that might be uncomfortable, that might be different than the things that we cling to, different than even the sins in our life that at times comfort us, right? Because they're familiar, because we know them, because we know what to expect. And yet Jesus gently, but also pretty aggressively says, do you, do you want to be healed, Do you want to be delivered from this condition? And that is the same question that he has for us. Do you want to be healed? Now, let's look at the man's response. The sick man answered him. He said, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going down, another steps down before me. You see, the the man still thinks that the answer to his healing is related to his circumstances. He is still looking to this contrived thing, right, this superstition for his healing. And and some of us find ourselves again in the same place, and we're still looking to the world to provide what only Christ can provide. And he says, do you want to be healed? And the man looks and says, I I don't know how. I don't know how to be healed. How how am I ever going to be the first person into this pool if that's the way to my healing. Nobody is coming along to carry me down in there. When the water is stirred up, I can't ever make it there. How? Again, looking naturally, looking at the world, looking at the solutions that his environment provides, his response to Christ is, I have no idea how I could possibly be healed in this situation. And again, we see so much of ourselves in there, right? When we look to when we look to our our natural instinct, when we look to the world, when we look to the things that we're surrounded by, many times we see that we want a way out. I I don't think that there's any of us that that before we knew Christ, if you know Christ in this room, didn't look at our lives and think, man, this is not what life is supposed to be. God has surely created me for something more than this, and I want it, but man, I don't know how. I don't know how as I look around and I, and, I, and I see all the worldly wisdom, I see all the advice, I see all of the self-help and different ways to make it out of where you're at and the, our American mentality of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, right? And I think, man, I just don't know how to do that. How could I ever make it into that place where I'm delivered from these things? He's looking to the wrong solution when the one who can deliver him is right in front of him. And that takes us to a difficult command. Look at what he says to the man. Jesus said to him in verse 8, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. To to a man who had been laying there for, for, we don't know how long, but for 38 years, he had been unable to move or walk. He says, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And, and, and faith is a difficult thing like that. Let, let, let me help you understand if you've never been in this situation, because faith makes things possible, but, but it doesn't always make them easy, right? His, his faith is what is going to allow him, Christ's healing is what is going to allow him to be able to get up and walk, Christ has already done what's necessary to heal him, and yet there is still a response that's, that's required, and it's, it's not an easy one. It's not an easy one to step out of a place that you have been in for such a long time and to go to something that is uncomfortable, that is full of, full of more opportunities to have to trust Christ, not full of less, right? As he steps out of this situation, he's stepping into something that he does not know and stepping out of something that he does know. And yet the command of Christ is simple. Take up your bed and walk. But where do you start? Where do you begin when God is calling you in faith to step out of the place that you're in and to go to a new place? It seems, I think a lot of times, if we were honest with ourselves, it seems like this man where we're just like I don't even, I know that God is telling me to do this thing. I know that He doesn't want me where I'm at. I know that He has something better for me. But how do I I get there? How do I how do I take that first step to stand up when I haven't stood in so long? It, It reminds me what Jesus said to him, reminds me. And maybe it does you guys, too, of of the encounter where we see, you guys remember the man who was paralyzed, right? And uh, I think this also happened in Capernaum, where Jesus was teaching and the house was so full, right? That the, the, The man's friends couldn't get him into the house, and so they removed a piece of the roof and they lowered him down on his mat into the middle of where Jesus was teaching. And Jesus remarking on the faith of their friends, In Mark chapter 2, that would lower him down in there, he says, because of this, you're well. Get up and... No, I'm sorry. First, he says what? He says, your sins are forgiven. He does. See, in this story, it's the other way around. He says, get up and walk. And then later on, we see him say, that you know, go and sin no more. But in that story, he says, first, your sins are forgiven. And if you guys remember... Everybody that was sitting there was wondering, the teachers of that day were wondering in their hearts, the Bible tells us, and Jesus knew what was in their hearts because they were questioning, who is this man that has the ability to forgive sins? And what's Jesus' response to him? He says, which one is easier, to say to him, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But so that you know that the Son of Man has the power and the ability to forgive sins, I say to this man, get up and walk. And walk, take up your mat and walk. And that's exactly what happens over in the, the other gospels. And that particular is described that way in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. But that man gets up and walks and leaves, knowing that his sins are forgiven. And likewise, we see, to Je- see Jesus say to this man, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And let's look at, let's look at the man's response it says and at once the man was healed so the healing the healing just like just like the official son that we saw last week the healing was immediate at once that man was healed when jesus said get up take up your bed and walk he was healed right then fully capable of getting up and taking up his bed and walk and he responds in faith by doing that and he the bible says he and i love this because it gives us literally the obedience to everything that Jesus said. He took up his bed and he walked. Right then, he did exactly what Jesus had commanded him. He took up his bed and walked. Now, the rest of verse 9 tells us that that day was the Sabbath. And that brings us to the the fourth point, which I bet you guys can guess because it's already on the screen. A disregard for Compassion. You see, this should have been amazing. This should have been miraculous. This should have had everybody. I mean, Jerusalem is the, is the capital of the nation of Israel, is the home of their temple. It is a people who are called after God and set apart for him. And it should have been on a feast full of people that were worshiping God. So it should be full of people who, in response to a man who had been lame for 38 years, walking miraculously by the word of Christ, it should have been full of people that were celebrating that. And I I think Jesus knew that. When he told him to take up his bed and walk, he knew that it would cause a spectacle. You, You see, When we look at the response of the religious leaders, and that's really who's in view there when it says in verse 10, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. They're saying, hey, this is is against the rules for the Sabbath. We're, We're supposed to rest, and yet here you are carrying your bed around what, what do you mean by this? Not, wow, it's amazing that, you're, that you were healed. But what in the world? It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Now, I, I want us to understand this because I want to be clear. What didn't happen was Jesus did not command a man to do something that God had prohibited on the Sabbath. That is not what has happened here. The the, the activity that the religious leaders are concerned about has nothing to do with God's commands for the Sabbath. When they say it's not lawful for you to do this, what they mean is it's, it's not within our rabbinical traditions for you to do this. It's not within the rules that we have made to help us obey the Sabbath for you to do this. In Uh, Mishnah, Shabbat 7.2, there are 39 types of prohibited labor on the Sabbath. This is nowhere in the Bible. This is nowhere in God's command for rest on the Sabbath. But there are 39 types of prohibited labor, and they include all kinds of things, like writing more than two letters, erasing letters so that you can then again write more than two letters, Sewing more than two stitches, walking more than a thousand yards from your house, carrying a burden from one place to another, or anything from one domain to another—like physically carrying anything from one place to another—is against the law, Uh, uh, and and many, 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 many other things. But this man's act of taking up his mat and leaving. The area where he was resting, where he was waiting to be healed, is carrying something from one place to another and would and immediately drew everybody's attention. they say it's not lawful it's not lawful for you to do this thing it's the Sabbath like don't, don't you know that it is the Sabbath and you can't take up your bed and walk from one place to another? You see their focus on religiosity keeps them from seeing what is really important. A man who hadn't been able to walk for 38 years is now standing in front of them and their concern is not how did this happen but hey, what are you doing carrying your bed around on the Sabbath? This, folks, is legalism at its core. We, we, this is the kind of thing that we have to be careful to look out for, and that is really easy for us to look in the Bible and to look at the religious leaders who were persecuting Jesus and to go, man, they had it so wrong, and then to totally miss it in ourselves. You see, see, legalism at its core is concerned with how do I follow a list of rules, not how do I have an encounter a relationship a meaningful interaction with God. You see that, that that's what has happened in this case. This man has been healed by Christ. He has come to know Christ when he didn't know him before. And it resulted miraculously in the ability for him to get up and walk. And instead of being concerned with that, they're concerned with the list of rules that they have about how everybody else ought to behave. Man, didn't you know that it's unlawful for you to do this? But can I tell you that if, that I, if I had been healed in this way, I probably would have been doing a lot of things that were unlawful, according to their regulations, because, man, you couldn't stop me from celebrating. And, th- and that's the man's response. That's what I want you to see in the next verse There. When they tell him it's unlawful for him to do this on the Sabbath, what's his response? He says, the man that healed me, he he told me, he told me, take up my bed and walk. And man, again, this is just, this text is so full of application for us. Because who are you going to listen to? Are are you going to listen to rules and traditions? things that are extra biblical? Are we going to listen to the the voice of the one who has healed us? Because that was the man's choice. I I don't want there to be any mistake about this. When Jesus healed him, when he told him to take up his mat and walk, he made a choice. Not just to stand up, but to follow the command that Christ has given him knowing that I said earlier that Jesus knew that this would attract attention. But this man knew that it would attract attention. He knew that this was against the law. There's nobody in Israel that didn't know that this was against the law. And not only that, he probably knew what the punishment could be for working on the Sabbath. You see, in that same text that spells out the 39 things types of activities that are prohibited on the Sabbath, it also says what the punishment is. And the punishment for willfully working on the Sabbath was, was death in one of two ways, either stoning or scourging. Those are the two ways that that text gives as a potential to put somebody to death for working on the Sabbath. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody always was put to death for willfully working on the Sabbath, but he knew that this was the possibility that he would have in one moment received healing and been able to walk and to obey Christ's command to take up his bed and walk. This one who had healed him meant that he could be walking to his own death. It means that he could be headed to death with his brand new found healing. And this is the same choice that we find ourselves in. When Jesus comes to us and asks us, do we want to be healed? Do we want to be forgiven? And when he does, when he forgives us and he rescues us from that sin, from those things that have so ensnared us, and he sets us free, and he gives us a command and bids us to follow him. The choice that we make when we follow Christ is always death. Death to myself, death to my preferences, death to my schedule, death to the things that I hold dear, the things that I cling to that are not Christ. And it can even, like this man, it could have cost him his very life. But what does the Bible say? He that loses his life for my sake, what? He gains it. He gains it. And so this man counted the cost. He knew what Jesus was asking him to do was unlawful. And yet his response is, the one who healed me, he told me to take up my bed and walk. My defense is the man who spoke to me and cured my infirmity that had been my lifelong 38 years trapped in this place, and suddenly I'm alive, he's the one that told me to take up my bed and walk. So you know what I did? I did it. I believe up until this point, we got to give the religious leaders some... A little bit of deference. They may not have been familiar with this man. They may not have known his exact infirmity. When they saw him carrying a burden from one place to another, maybe they felt obligated to just be like, hey, don't you know that you can't do that? But when he tells them that he has been healed, this is where we see that, that total disregard for compassion because their excitement is not for his healing. Rather than trying to find out who it is that could heal a man who has been infirmed for 38 years. Is that what you guys see in the text? Do they say, who is it that healed you? No. They say, who is it that told you to take up your bed and walk? He says, I'm doing this because the man who healed me told me to take up my bed and walk. And their question is, who is it that told you to take up your bed and walk? Who who would command you to to break our tradition, to break our rules? We want to find this person. It's so interesting. As we move into looking at their desperate attempt at self righteousness, they ask him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed? And walk. They begin to inquire, not how is it that you are well, but who would tell you to do this thing that nobody else in Jerusalem is doing? No one else is carrying a thing from one place to another, and they, they want to know who has commanded you to break our rules. But look at what we find out in verse 13. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd on the place. Now, this is, again, much like Jesus in crowded places to to withdraw after doing something that is miraculous to remove himself from the situation, to prevent a, a spectacle. But I want you guys to see, too, that at the moment that this man was healed, He didn't yet know who Jesus was. Now, he probably had heard. I I find it hard to believe that there was anybody that hadn't heard of the miracles that Jesus was doing at his teaching, at the way that he so clearly taught and spoke on behalf of God and at the miraculous signs and wonders. I, I don't think it's that he hadn't heard of who Jesus is. He just didn't know that it was Jesus that was standing in front of him in that moment he he didn't know that it was Christ who asked him if he wanted to be healed he didn't know that it was Christ that had said take up your mat and walk he just knew that it was that it was a man and that he listened and that man and that and that man was the power of God because I was healed in a moment and and I think if we think about it for a minute we can, we can put ourselves in this man's position, right? The, the, there, there's been a time in our life, maybe even in this moment now, where, where God is acting clearly through Christ on my life, and yet I don't yet know him well enough to know and to look at him and say, that it, it's Jesus that has been doing this. And yet when we look at it, when we study the evidence, God has been moving in power, trying to reveal himself to us, trying to make himself clear to us, trying to bring us to the place that he would have us, and yet we're not quite able to say, man, that was was Jesus that was doing that. But praise God that he takes us to a place where we recognize that, where we can, like I said last week, we can look back on our lives and go, wow, before I was even ready to follow Christ, before I was really even ready to make this choice that this man made to forsake the rules and the obligations and the traditions and everything that was comfortable about my life to follow Christ, even then before I really knew him, he was standing there and he was pursuing me and he was making a way and he was healing and he was delivering. And that's the place that this man finds himself in. He says, I don't know. I, I, I don't know who it was that that healed me. His response to their inquisition is, I, I can't tell you. I, I, I don't know. It's this person that said to me, take up your mat and walk. And look at verse 14. Afterward, Jesus... Found him Afterward, after this inquisition had took place, after the religious leaders had stopped this man who had been healed and asked him why he was carrying his bed and told him it was unlawful and asked him who told him to do it, and he provided no answer because he didn't know. After that, Jesus found him in the temple. You know, compared to the religious leaders... This man's response is appropriate. The, the response to him being healed to him being delivered is that we find him in the temple worshiping. Their response to this miracle is to launch an investigation. They, they want an inquiry into how is it possible that this thing happened. But the man's response is not at all an attempt of self-righteousness, right? He, he knew that there was no way that he could do this for himself. He knew that apart from a move of God, there was no way for him to be healed. And so his response where Jesus finds him is in the temple, worshiping, praising God for his healing, for his deliverance, while those who are focused on self-righteousness are instead trying to understand how somebody could have commanded somebody else to break our rules, to break our traditions. So Jesus finds him there in the temple, and he becomes aware that it's Jesus. Jesus says to him, see you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, I want to deal with this for just a second. It's not in your, it's not in your outline, but I want to talk about it for a second, because we're, we're confronted by this issue over and over and over again in Scripture. See, the truth of the reality of the world that we live in is that it is fallen. It is full of sin. And sin in this world means that there are very often consequences to that sin. It it means that sometimes terrible things happen that we can't immediately see why because of sin. But somebody's infirmity does not always mean that they are the one that sinned. I'll remind you of Job, right? Where where we find Job, and and the Bible tells us that he was righteous before God, and yet the devil desired to test Job, and so he went before God, and he asked permission to to try him to see that Job would still praise him. He he tells God, he's not going to praise you when you take away all of these good things. And so the devil goes about tormenting Job when he had done nothing wrong and at the end of job we see his friends come right and after they sit with him and they mourn and they mourn over all of the loss of his family and his land and his livestock then they say to him job you know it's probably because you it's probably because you sinned that these things happen it's probably because you did something that offended god so why don't you just repent now and like all let all this calamity be over and Job says, no, that's, that is not it. And God affirms that that is not it in a rebuke to his friends. And if you need a New Testament example, I'll remind you that as Jesus was going along the way, he found a man who was blind, and his disciples specifically asked him. They said, is it because of this man's sin that he's blind, or is it because of his parents' sin that he's blind? And you know what Jesus' response was? Neither. It is neither. It is for the glory of God that this man is blind so that you guys might see something amazing that happens and he heals that man of his blindness. Sometimes, sometimes the situation that we find ourselves in is because of sin. The, 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 the calamity that befalls us is because we sinned or because somebody around us sinned and there are consequences to sin. Sin. But we can't always assume that just because something terrible happens that it's due to a specific person's sin and not due to the fact that we live in a fallen world that is full of sin. And yet Jesus encourages this man. He says, look, you're healed now. Maybe he knew that the temptations were going to abound now that this person is healed. Suddenly all of the things that he could never do because of his infirmity were possibilities for him. But he tells them, go and, go and sin no more, that something worse may not happen to you. But I want us to be careful and just not see that. Because this is where, this is where you get wrong theology from. Because some people will look at a passage like this and they will say, it is always, every time something bad happens, it is the result of somebody's direct sin. And if something terrible is happening in your life, it is because you sin. No, it is because we live in a fallen world full, full of terrible things full of sickness and disease and infirmity and sometimes sometimes yes there is something to turn from to repent from for healing to come but sometimes we just man we're just reaping the consequences of a sin sick world and it's not healthy or helpful for us to point to somebody's sin as the reason for their illness so Jesus tells them he says go and sin no more and I, his response Look at his response to learning that it was Jesus that healed him. He clearly knows it after Jesus comes to him in the temple. We're not really told why it is that he knows that it was Jesus after this. But the, in verse 15, it says, The man went away, and he told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. I, I want you to see his response to learning that it was Jesus. He, he doesn't say hey, it was Jesus who told me to break the Sabbath. That's what they were worried about. They were concerned about who was it that told you to take up your bed and walk. But he goes and he tells them that it was Jesus who has healed him. He went away and told the religious leaders, but he probably told everybody else about Jesus' healing power as well. So we see the religious leaders' desperate attempt at Self-righteousness. And lastly, I want us to see a definitive claim. As the band comes, verse 16, 17, and 18 serves as our transition into the next several weeks of teaching because you'll find that everything through the rest of chapter 5 really has to do with these few verses. Verse 16 tells us, This is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. What are these things? Well, he was healing people on the Sabbath, which, just so I can assuage your concerns, healing is not one of the 39 prohibited uh, uh, activities for the Sabbath. It's certainly not anywhere in the Bible. And in fact, you know what the Bible tells us is that he didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. And and there's not any way in which Christ failed to keep God's law, but that doesn't mean that he always abided by man's tradition. And this is why they were persecuting him, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Translate that, because he was upsetting their control, their authority, their sense of self-righteousness, their sense of superiority, and their ability to follow the law, because as we just saw, they weren't concerned with hearing from God. They weren't concerned with meeting and encountering God. They were concerned with observance to rules. But look at how Jesus answers, him, answers them. Now, we don't, know, we don't know the context that this answer took place in. It's likely that they found Jesus based on, uh, on this encounter that occurred and, and maybe asked him his, some questions. But his response to them persecuting him for working on the Sabbath As he answered them, my father is working, this is verse 17, until now, and I am working. You see, Jesus here makes a definitive claim. Elsewhere in scripture, as he does things that are prohibited on the the Sabbath according to their traditions, he he points to other things. He says, you know, don't you remember when David ate the, the, the bread of the temple when he was starving? He says that the Sabbath was... Made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He provides examples or reasons why what he's doing is permissible. Here, he doesn't. Here, his response is God set all of this into being. He spoke and all of this existed. The reason that you have the Sabbath, Jesus says, is because God created the whole world in six days and then he created the seventh day for rest and he abstained from his regular work. But ever since then, he has been. Working. Ever since then, my Father has been working to bring us to just this moment in time. And sneak peek, ever since then, He has been working. He has not stopped working. In just these few words, Jesus, look what verse 18 says says this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath but he was even calling God his own father making himself equal to God and you know what you can't can't read a passage of scripture like this and not see that it was apparent to those men that were talking to Jesus who he was claiming to be and it should be apparent to us we can't have An encounter with the real Jesus and not leave changed. You see, if if you can encounter a statement like that, that Jesus Himself is claiming to be equal with God, the third person of the Trinity, the one who would come and live a sinless life and die for our sins, the one who would say to a man, You're healed, get up and walk, the one who would say, Your sins are forgiven. Either that is something that we absolutely have to believe with our whole hearts and follow after and trust for everything that we need in our life and we are changed or it's heresy, it's blasphemy. And we have to look at the evidence and we have to decide, is this, is this Christ? Is he the truth? Is he the one that's waiting to rescue me from a situation much like that man? where I don't know where healing is going to come from. Or is he something else altogether? But there is no option to just disregard. There is no option to ignore his claim. If we can walk away unchanged and ignore his claim, then we don't understand it. It hasn't pierced to the depth of our soul who Christ says that he is, but he bids us, us take up our mat and walk and leave behind that place that we find ourselves and not only does he ask us to command us to do it but he has the power to make it possible but the question for all of us is will we in faith do it that first step is hard much like that man it seems impossible and yet when we purpose to follow and we find that he gives us the strength to take that step and the next step and every single step after that as he leads us, as he guides us, as he transforms us, as he purifies us and sanctifies us. But he still asks the question and he expects us to respond. Do you want to be healed? If you want to be healed this morning, I know a Savior that can do it. Now, does that mean that every physical aspect of the infirmities of our life, that he will heal instantaneously? No. Some things we're promised we won't get healing from until heaven. But there does come a day where the Bible tells us that there will be no more pain. There will be no more tears. The old things will have passed away. The new things will have come. And we will be perfectly right and healed. But he stands ready now to deliver you from the place that you find yourself in. But he asks you to come to him, to want to be healed, to want to obey him, and to let him do the rest. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for truth. God, we so desperately need truth in our lives. Lord, we don't need another easy thing to believe, Lord. We need the hard things. We need the hard truths because, God, you're calling us to something that is better. So, Lord, wherever we find ourselves this morning, Lord, whether we know you, God, and we're just seeking to follow you better, Lord, would you Would you call us out of the comfortable place that we find ourselves and into something that requires faith? And God, if we don't know you, Lord, you are so able to save. It is by your mighty hand, God, that you save. If there's somebody in this place, Lord, that has never trusted you, God, I pray that their response would be like that of the paralytic man, Lord, that they would want to be healed they would in faith be willing to trust that you can do it. Maybe not having all the answers, maybe not knowing yet how it will look, but God, that they would trust you and walk in obedience to follow after you. And Lord, would you, be help, would you help us, Lord, to come alongside them and to encourage them and to celebrate with them. Lord, speak to our hearts now in this place. Help us to respond to you in Jesus' name. This time is for you to pray. What is it that the Lord's calling you to do? band's going to sing a song, you can sit and pray, you can sing. If you want to come down here and pray, you can. If you want somebody to pray with, I'm here.
1: I'll follow you.
5: better than that to sing. But the question is, is that our declaration going out from this place? Wherever you lead me, whatever it costs me, God, I'll follow you anywhere. Make that your prayer this week, church. Go be blessed. And if you would exit out the back doors, because I think we've got folks coming in the side. So thank you. We love you, church.